I remember I, I was introduced to a game in junior high. And it's maybe the first time that I was introduced to the concept of mercy. Are there any junior high boys in here this morning? Okay, good, because I don't want to give any ideas to you. Um, but mercy was a game where you, you enter, it's a type of hand wrestling. Has anyone play mercy? So you'd interlock your fingers, and then you would try to push each other's fingers backward, and whoever um, says mercy first, that means the other opponent wins. And so that was a game of mercy. Anybody want to demonstrate? No. I played it once, and I was done. And I was done. Um, but this morning, I want us to get a really good grasp of what real mercy is. And it's not just a hand game of where you're, you're stopping punishment, but it's a way of living that God calls us to that sometimes may be hard to grasp because, you know, it's so intangible sometimes of what it means to live with a sense of, of mercy. You know, part of it, I think, stems from a, a, a root in all of us that we want to have someone love us. And it's important to note that we want people to love us because they can, not because they have to. For example, um, I remember there was a student who came up to me after a, I don't remember if it was the band event or a ball game, but came up to me so excited and said, oh, I am so happy. Nancy Totten came to watch me. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. She is really a great person. And then I said, but I'm here too. And they said, yeah, but you're the youth minister. You're paid to be here. She's not, she's not paid to be here. She came just because she wanted to. And it's an understanding of living that we do desire within us to be loved by other people. And it's something I think that God put in us as we desire a relationship with God and we desire relationships with other people that we recognize that, that authenticity is something that's very important in those relationships. Not empty actions that we can do. Um, for example, in our worship with God, we can, we can do churchy things. We can be a regular attender to church. We can, we can put some money in the offering plate, and we can, do, um, we can take communion. We can get baptized. But if we don't have that authentic relationship inside, then those can just be churchy things we do. They can be things that, even though they're, they're intended to be transformational part of our worship, but if they're just things that we do without an authentic relationship with God, they're just things that we do. You see, we can do all of the, these churchy things and be just as lost as someone who has not put a foot in a church in their life. So it's important that we recognize with, with really real soberness and understanding that our relationship with God is something that, that springs forth, that is something that is inside of us that, that transforms our actions and our love and our attitude toward all people. And so as we come, as we're still looking in Hosea here, we're in chapter 6, and we get an understanding that the people here, many of whom that this prophet is challenging and talking to, 
they're still worshiping. They're still doing the actions of things, but their heart is not in it, and God is getting fed up. He is tired of, of having all these churchy things being done, these sacrifices being offered, but the heart of the people not being in it. And within that, the prophet Hosea comes to the people and says, enough is enough. We'll start reading in Hosea 6. And as I read through this passage, get an understanding of, of some of this passion that God is having toward his people. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces. Now, as we read through this, this is a poem. And so there's metaphor language in here pointing out that God's really angry. And so as we read that, recognize that this is poetry. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. You know, I'm sure they're scratching their heads back then wondering, what does that mean on the second and the third day? But recognize our Savior rose on the third day. And three, we acknowledge the Lord. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. So here he's giving the, the image of the water and the rain that just keeps coming during the rainy season that fully fills the ground and, and gives the water that the earth needs. It's not a simple shower, but a, a blessing of an abundant amount of water to us. But then in four, he continues, What can I do with you, Ephraim? Which is another word for Israel that the poet is using here, the prophet. What can we do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that appears. He's recognizing the dew. How long does it last? Usually, I, I don't like to mow when there's dew on because I think it causes rust in my mower, so I wait till the dew's gone because it disappears quickly. When the sun comes up and there's a little breeze, that moisture's gone. So God is saying, I give huge amounts of rain. What do you give me? You give me a little mist, like a little Windex bottle breath of, of moisture in my direction when I am giving you all the water that you need. And five, therefore I cut you to pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth, then my judgment to go forth like the sun. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. As at Adam they have broken the covenant, they were unfaithful to me there. So as he is pointing out what he has been offering, and he makes the statement that they must be shocked because as you look through the Torah, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, as God is giving instructions on keeping this covenant made with Moses and through Moses, that you have to do all these sacrifices, and you have to do them just right in a certain way. And as you do this, this is how you worship me. And God is saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. 
Here there's an understanding that as they have been doing the, some of the things they're called to do, God doesn't accept it because their heart is not in it. And then as I read in this last verse in, in 7, as at Adam, and some, some of us today, um, theologians scratch their heads because at Adam, what does that mean, at Adam? Um, is that a name of a town that we don't know of? Did something happen there? And, and people aren't sure, but most people take it as poetry and that this is saying, and there's a, a word play here, and you may or may not recall that the word Adam in Hebrew means earth, ground, um, as Adam was made from the dirt and God breathed life into him that his name is dirt, is earth. So as at Adam, they broke the covenant, they were unfaithful to me there, meaning I think all of us, all of you, all of the people during this time period, as the prophet is talking, they have messed up in royal ways. But God is faithful. But this phrase I keep going back to, and, and maybe you've heard before, that God requires mercy, not sacrifice. And I'm surely he's just not talking about a hand-wrestling game, but he's talking about a way of living that recognizes the desire to show mercy, to show kindness to the people who need that. In fact, Jesus refers back to this passage in Hosea um, at a very important time as he's trying to teach those around him, as he's trying to actually teach the religious leaders on how we're required to live. So I'm going to jump to the New Testament. And here in the New Testament, I want to read from Matthew um, from chapter 9. And Jesus has been teaching, and along the way, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man, Matthew. And this man, Matthew, is the writer of this gospel, the book of Matthew. But at this point in Matthew's life, he is not a follower of Jesus. In fact, he's a traitor. He's a traitor to the nation. He's a Benedict Arnold. You see, as Matthew, in order to earn his income, he, did deci he decided to live with the oppressors. He decided to get his money and his income from the Roman Empire who was oppressing them. And he is not choosing a, a, an occupation where he's earning a living through his hard work but he's decided to collect taxes for the Romans. And as he collects the taxes for, his Rome, for the Roman oppressors and gives them their share, he can collect whatever amount of taxes he wants and he gets to keep the excess. And as he keeps that excess, is one more example of where he is living off the people. And so he is an example of not showing mercy. He's living an example of selfishness. He's living an example of how to live life where you put me first and to all my countrymen, I don't care. I'm making the living that I see fit. And people have given up on him. His Hebrew friends have no longer visit him. He's alone. The only friends that he can have are the people or other people that they hate. The New Testament would call them sinners, publicans, tax gatherers, because the only friends they can have are the people who are not friends with 
the Jewish leadership or the Jewish people. And as Jesus comes and he sees Matthew and he's walking by his table that is set up to collect taxes with Roman guards around making sure there's no trouble, Jesus goes up to him not to pay taxes, but he, he sees straight to Matthew's heart and he sees a man who is not being living, calling out the way that God has called him. And Jesus goes up to him and has this conversation. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man, Matthew, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And as Matthew heard these words, he may already know Jesus by reputation, or maybe not. But there's this rabbi coming up to him and says, follow me. Now, one thing that I've read is this phrase, follow me, does have significance during this time period. That as a rabbi um, is choosing his followers, and they choose their followers typically from the ones who have memorized Scripture the best. They choose their, their followers from those who have shown the best in their studies the ones who ask the best questions when they're teaching, and the ones who know God best. But Jesus goes up to Matthew where he is at and says, follow me. And wherever you're at in your life right now, God is offering that same phrase to you, follow me. No matter where your heart has been or where it's at right now, Jesus is making this motion in love. Come follow me. Come follow me. Matthew got up and he followed him. I don't know what the soldiers thought, what his co-workers thought, but he left the table and followed Jesus. And then while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, so apparently as he followed, Jesus is like, let's go to your place. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And I can imagine the disciples thinking, you told me yesterday I'd be eaten in a tax collector's house, I would have not believed you. But here they found themselves in new territory, a new place of living as they're following the example of Jesus, and they were with those that they despised. Those who they told you're supposed to stay away from. If you're around these people, you'll get dirty. And others saw this. The, the religious leadership of the time, the ones who were called to point out what, who God is, what God is like, and referring to his teachings. When the Pharisees saw this in 11, they asked his disciples, why, do your, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors? And sinners, why is your rabbi leading you to do this? Notice, like, they're asking the disciples this, but Jesus hears, and he says, Is it not the healthy? It is not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. And he quotes a verse that they know well. They know it up here, but they don't know it here. I desire mercy, 
not sacrifice. So he throws this verse to them that they know all too well to the religious leaders who are supposed to be teaching the way of God and how to live. And Jesus responds, For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, mercy is not about what God needs and what God needs for himself, but mercy is a way that we can show God, we understand your heart, and we're going to act the way that you act. That we are going to show a way of love to all people. Even when all of society may hate them, we are going to show love to them because all of us are created in God's image and all of us are worthy of hearing about God's love. All of us are worthy of giving a chance to hear the good news. And I'll point out here, how did Matthew respond to this invitation? He got up from his table and he left. And we don't have an example of, of, of him going back. It, it transformed his life. And that's what it means to come to Christ in a form of, of repentance. It's, it's an understanding that God calls us to more than where we're at now. God is calling us to a lifetime of repentance. A lifetime of growing and understanding of where I'm selfish, where I'm looking at my needs and who I'm called to be to learn to put, replace our broken heart, our broken attitude with God's heart and God's attitude. And we may get a good start when we start in our relationship with God, but it's really a lifetime journey of learning what that means and what it means not to have me first. I was, I was shocked when my sister-in-law was telling me this. You see, she had been working as a volunteer youth worker in her church in Ohio. And after working for a while, working with student ministry, having about 15 kids or so, um, one day a, a Hispanic kid came in. And this Hispanic kid was a really um, popular person who had a desire to know Jesus. And this person began to grow in that understanding. And then over the next year, an amazing thing happened, something miraculous in the church. Um, she was having a hundred kids come to her events, the vast majority of them Hispanic kids. And they were coming in and worshiping. It was transforming the culture of not only the youth group, but the church. And then she was very excited because it was time now for church camp. Church camp was approaching in the summer, and at a business meeting, someone mentioned, because um, her church did like, like our church today, we, we, we pay a good portion of the kids who go to church camp to encourage that to happen. We pay, we give scholarships to help with that, with a portion of that experience. But at the business meeting, it was brought up that the church can't afford to help pay for half of all of these kids going to camp. So they made a decision that this only went to the regular church kids and that there would be no scholarships to Hispanic kids. And my sister-in-law was like, what? This is the solution 
to this legitimate issue and a legitimate problem is to, to cut them off. And so she resigned. And those kids didn't know what to, to think or say. And the love that they were feeling from this church became like dew, like a mist that just when the, the sun came out and the heat came, the love just evaporated. And there was no more love for all these kids. So for all of us, an understanding of what does it mean to have an authentic relationship with God, that will come out and flow out of us in our attitude toward people, especially the ones who we have rejected, who we see there's no good there. And as I look in my own life, I'm still doing it. I still, I noticed this weekend I was around people and as I was around them, I was thinking that they're pretty lost. Not much going on spiritually in their lives. And then one of these people came up to me and said, Randy, I, I just want you to know, um, this past year I, I've started reading my Bible. And I got a Bible, and I, I've read through the whole thing, and I'm just dumbfounded because that's the last thing that I expected. And then the person didn't know much, and he said, so is there more I need to read now? Is there another book? And I'm like, no, there's, there's enough in the Bible. You, you start reading it again. You see, it's a book that you go to over and over again, and as you read it over and over, you you, you gain more and more insight about who God is. And then I offered him some other helps to help him understand what he has been reading. And I just afterwards felt the shame of God on me for not giving that person the hope that God had given them. For me not giving them an opportunity with me more vocally always sharing God's love with them in the need. Are there people in your life, is it your neighbors, a coworker, or you think they're just lost and there's no hope for them? You see, we're all created in God's image and God knows what's in the heart. We don't know what's in the heart. So because of that, we're called to show mercy to everyone. We're called to always be understanding that this person, if they're not showing something on the outside right now, we don't know what's going on in the inside. And we don't know how God is working in their lives, just like God's working in our lives, but people may not see that outside of us. So for all of us this morning, I really want us to think, am I authentically in a relationship with God now such that it's changing my behavior of how I live. And even though I, I may go to church on a regular basis and I do, I take communion and I, I got baptized a while back, am I living out an authentic life of the good news of the gospel? Am I continually repenting of my selfishness and the things that I do for me? Am I continuing allowing the Holy Spirit to convict me of where I'm not having the heart I need to 
and where I need to grow and where God wants me to change? Am I in that relationship where that's happening on a regular basis? Because it's so easy just to look at and think that our faith is good because of X, Y, and Z, that I do this and I do this and I do that, and because of that, I'm good. And the truth of it is, is we're not good. God's the only one that's good. But because of his grace and mercy in our lives, because of that transformation that happens, that when God sees us through the vision of the cross, when God sees us through what Christ has done for us, then he sees not goodness in us, but he sees the goodness of Jesus. He sees the love of Jesus when he sees us as we're in that relationship. So for all of us this morning, where are you at right now? Where are you at in your, your passion and your zeal for Jesus and for the kingdom? And is it a place where God wants you to be right now? Or is it just a place of living life, doing what you need to do, going through the motions? But I want us to really think about that deeply because it's so important. See, you can be a Pharisee and not know Jesus. You can be a pastor and not know Jesus. You can be a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, a regular attender, and not know Jesus. We're called to something that's deep, that's from the heart, that asks for authenticity, for acknowledgement of who God is. So this morning, the question I ask, how is my outside of the church building behavior representing Christ? How is my attitude outside of these walls representing Christ and his kingdom? We're going to sing, and as we do so, just allow yourselves to feel the presence and to hear the words of the Spirit working in your life. And don't be afraid. Matthew gave up his whole life, his whole understanding and who he, he was, and he gave up his identity as a tax collector. And he never looked back. And from that point on, his life was filled with joy when before it was filled with heartache and pain and hatred. God wants the same for you. So listen to the Spirit, and I'll be up here if you want to talk about anything, share anything, or to have me pray with you as we continue worshiping as we sing.